0: You have been very patient as I've been in the studio creating today's story, and I would like to thank you for that, really. Those of you who heard my check-in on Friday know that the story you're going to hear today took a lot of work to bring to life. Just about 65 hours, to put a number to it, and a fair amount of money. I actually just got done totaling it all up in labor and cost and all those things, and it's just under three grand. These hours and this money went towards custom music production, music licensing, voice talent, sound effects libraries, Foley content, and cover art, which you're not going to get to see until next Friday when Paolo Puyoni, an artist who has worked on Star Wars, Game of Thrones, and a number of other well-known movie and television franchises, and who I am very fortunate to have developed a working relationship with, finishes it. Before we start, it's important that I prep you for the story and take a few minutes to explain the position that we, you and me, find ourselves in. First and foremost, this episode should be listened to on a pair of headphones. The sound design in some spots is subtle, and you'll want to be able to hear everything. Playing this in your car won't bring you the same experience as a pair of decent headphones will. I myself have listened about a dozen times on a mix of mediums to include a Sterling brand of reference monitors, a $30 pair of Logitech desktop speakers, a $500 Klipsch 32 hi-fi speaker a pair of AKG 240s and K52s, those are headphones, a pair of first-gen Apple AirPods, and a Corsair gaming headset. The mix holds up fine across all of those, but the point is that you will need to be able to really hear the details to appreciate everything that went into producing this quote-unquote podcast episode, and I feel almost uncomfortable calling it that because I feel as though what I've done here has transcended that label and is very much bordering on audio drama or immersive audio experience. It's not 100% there yet, but this is only my first try at something this, let's say, grand. Secondly, if you've heard the show before, you know that I own a small recording studio in South Portland. I produce podcasts and audiobooks for a living, and the studio generates around $120,000 of annual revenue And after operational overhead and other costs, I pay myself about $40,000 a year. It's a humble living, but it's the living I want to make. In order to pull this off successfully, I woke up at 3 a.m. for two weeks in a row and completed all my client-related post-production work between 5 a.m. and noon. Then I would work from noon to 5-ish on this project, go home, be in bed by 9, and do it all again the next day. And over the weekend, I dedicated 6 hours a day or 12 hours over Saturday and Sunday entirely to the story you're getting closer to hearing. And I don't point out the effort that went into the story you're about to hear in order to impress you or to paint myself as some sort of podcasting martyr. I point it out so that you can believe, without hesitation, the next thing I'm about to say. This level of production isn't sustainable without your help. And that help will need to come in two forms— financial, and advocative. In order to gain your support in this, I'll need to give you a way to influence story selection, a way to make sure things are faithfully recorded and accurately transformed from printed text in 200-year-old dusty books into immersive audio experiences, and a way for all of us to hold one another accountable for a broad and diverse approach to story inclusion. For example, we all like Norse myths, but what about Taiwanese folklore? We all of course enjoy the Greek pantheon of mythology. It's fantastic. But what about stories from Romania or Ethiopia? Chile? Argentina? Cambodia? Turkey? Korea? Egypt? And what of the dozens upon dozens of dead cultures whose stories are quite literally on the cusp of literary extinction because no one can be interested in them because no one has mentioned them in a hundred years or more? To do this right, I need more than your financial support. I need your voice and your unique perspective and cultural interests. Today's story is from an 1887 book entitled Legends and Popular Tales of the Basque People, a 250-page anthology, as it were, of Basque folklore and legend that you've certainly never heard before. And it was collected by Mariana Montero. Who is Mariana Montero? Who knows? I can't find a single Wikipedia entry with her name on it, nor can I find a photo, but I can find a number of books and works bearing her name. If she hadn't written this book, you wouldn't be hearing this story today, and yet she seems entirely forgotten. Today's story is a link to her, a link to her work. And while it is certainly not the only one, it's probably the only one you've discovered, but now that you have, you know her name. And now you'll know the story of Roldan and his bugle horn, and of Pepe and Francisco, and their fight with the man-eating bear that plagued the village of Roncesvalles and the mountains of Navarre in the winter of 1829. But what if I hadn't found it? What if I hadn't taken the time to transform it into what you will now hear as an immersive audio experience full of excitement and suspense? And what if you weren't here to hear it? If a story dies in the woods and no one is around who knew it existed in the first place, does it make it into the archives? Did it ever exist at all? I very much want to continue producing these stories in the fashion you're about to hear, because I believe it is important work. I'll need your help to make that possible. So please stick around after the story to find out how you can be part of preserving these important parts of our shared human history and culture. Today's story, again, comes from the book Popular Tales of the Basque People, collected by Mariana Montero in the late 1800s and published in 1887 by Fisher Unwin Publishing in London. It is titled The Bugle Horn of Roldan, and links to the original text can be found in the description of this episode. The text was not altered in any way, and so some of the language will reflect the time period. Please remember to wear headphones or listen on high-quality speakers. This episode is not intended to be listened to in the car. I hope you enjoy it, and I'll see you on the other side. When I heard this legend for the first time, I was a youth the circumstances which preceded and followed its narrative deserve to be mentioned although they have no relation to the legend itself but they were of such a nature that they will never be erased from my mind and i think will impart a greater interest in the tale the winter of 1829 was one of the most severe seasons known in this century in spain snow fell all over the country And even in the southern provinces, where a fall of snow is quite a phenomenon, seen perhaps just once a century. But naturally, where the rigor of the winter was more keenly felt was in the Basque provinces. The roads from town to town and from valley to valley were absolutely impassable, and many houses were buried beneath the snow for days. The few travelers who were compelled to traverse the mountains encountered fearful dangers of being lost in the drifts, or of falling into chasms, or in truth even of being attacked by packs of famished wolves whom, forsaking their usual haunts in the woods due to the weather, prowled around the habitations. On this occasion I was in Goizieta, a town in the mountains of Navarre enjoying the delicious hams of the country which supplied the table of my uncle, the curé of that place, who was also an indefatigable huntsman. The great snowstorm, which fell without intermission, did not permit us to leave the bounds of the dwelling houses, and so we eagerly awaited the weather to break up a little, so that we could be enabled to go to the neighboring mountains to hunt the deer and wild boars which abounded there. Near the beginning of January, the skies began to clear up, and one evening, as we were consulting together on the practicability of starting on the following morning, a stalwart and strong-looking Basque presented himself at the door as the bearer of a letter from the prior of the Monastery of Roncesvalles. This letter was addressed to my uncle, and in it the prior besought him in the name of their long friendship to come and pay a visit to the abbey and to bring a good pack of hounds in order to hunt an enormous black bear which had appeared in the neighborhood and which was devouring every living creature it could find. At dawn on the following morning, we started for the abbey, to the number of 14 huntsmen and 20 dogs, the pick of the bloodhounds and mastiffs on the mountains of Navarre. At nightfall of the subsequent day, we reached our destination, after traversing the picturesque valley of Baztin, the bounds of Yuji, and the plain called Prado de Roldan, the water and snow reaching in many parts nearly to our waists. On reaching the abbey of roncesvale we were received by the prior and his monks excellent men whose lives were passed in tranquil magnificence when i described the lofty towers of that monastery and beheld the strong walls which surrounded it and on seeing the houses of the inhabitants of that small town grouped around the immense extent of this monastic dwelling it seemed to me that i was instantly transported to other ages and, to my imagination, carried back seven centuries, at least, as the whole rose up before me as the work of a still more remote age. In a sense, I found myself in the Middle Ages. And, in truth, this idea was reasonable enough when I looked at our pack of hounds, on the robes in which we were all dressed, on the two monks who had come forth to receive us, and on beholding the group of country people who attentively examined us, and saluted respectfully the venerable prior, who was bestowing his blessings upon them with a benevolent, fatherly smile, and whom the people loved as a true father. As we entered the place, the massive doors of the monastery closed upon us, and we traversed the immense cloisters, preceded by servants bearing torches of pitch tau to light the way to the roomy, comfortable cell of the prior, where we could rest our wearied limbs and dry our soaked garments. As a young man, all this was a new scene to me, and I derived an immense pleasure in giving full play to my imagination, and allowing full scope to the ideas which continually presented themselves to me. That one over there is the noble lord of this fortress. I thought to myself as I looked at the prior who was seated close to the hearth upon which burned huge blocks of wood. Further on are his principal men. We, ourselves, are the retinue of some other feudal baron, perhaps come to form an alliance with his neighbor. I am the shield bearer, he who removes the hood from the favorite falcon, the one who holds the bridle of the horse of the lady of the castle, he who carries the shield and the standard of its lord on the day of battle. And that one there is his ranger, he who arranges the hunt, and who sounds the horn when the noble deer dashes out of its cover, and this other. My soliloquy was quickly interrupted by the ringing of the bell which announced that supper was ready. We all rose up on hearing this welcome sound and departed to the private refectory of the prior. And it was here that another surprise awaited me, one that was in harmony with the thoughts which had already been suggested to me by the scenes before me. A table of colossal dimensions groaned beneath huge haunches of venison and quarters of wild boar smoking in great dishes of beautiful pewter. Further on were dozens of trout and bright copper casserole dishes. Large flagons of yellow and sweet Peralta, of red Tudela wine and cider, flanked either side of this enormous feast. It was truly one of those Homeric suppers, the memory of which has reached even to our current days. Yet, in spite of the abundance of food, the haunches and quarters and dozens of fish were fast disappearing, and the dishes remained empty, as though by enchantment. Wines and liquors also were consumed with incredible rapidity, and I must confess that I was one of those who most contributed to their prodigious disappearance. During the meal, the whole conversation turned to the object of our journey and the prior informed us that the bear we had come from such a long distance to hunt was so formidable an animal that no one dared to venture far from their dwellings, for fear of being devoured. We shall bring you that bear tomorrow. The gleam in my uncle's eyes as he said this betrayed the impatience of this enthusiastic huntsman.
1: Be careful what you do, my friend. I am told that it is an enormous animal, very agile and exceedingly ferocious. Believe me, you need have no fear, and I promise you that his skin shall keep your feet warm this winter. Would to God you did destroy him, for I assure you that there will be many to thank you, since the poor carriers and muleteers are quite cowed with the beast who persists in following them. Towards what part is the animal more frequently seen? On the road which leads to the Gate of France. On the path of Roldan? Yes. Yes. It is about that district that he has been seen. Tis well. Now, gentlemen, let us retire to rest, as it will be necessary to rise early tomorrow.
0: The prior recited the benedict. In nomine Patris et Filii et
1: Spiritus Sancti. Amen.
0: And the servants appeared with lights, and each guest betook himself to the room assigned to him, for it was eleven o'clock, and the supper had lasted long. My cousin Francisco and myself occupied a small apartment which had two long, narrow windows from which could be descried a portion of the neighboring forest. In that moment I could not resist gazing upon the weird scene before me. The moon was illuminating with her cold, white beams, the landscape covered with snow, and not the smallest cloud could be perceived on the horizon to obscure her pure light. I slowly swung open one of the windows and stood contemplating this beautiful spectacle before me. If on reaching the monastery I had before formed to myself the illusion that I was visiting one of the feudal castles of the Middle Ages, full of pages, ladies, and knights, that illusion now began to assume a greater reality as I stared out of this huge Gothic window. In front of me lay a vast field mantled by hard snow, which beneath the moonbeams appeared like a spotless, white carpet, the congealed icicles glistening in the moonlight as though the ground were studded with brilliance, topazes, and emeralds. Further on, and half hidden by a slight mist, could be seen the houses of the town of Brugget, and to the right rose up the lofty peaks of the Iru, and other mountains which form this severe range until they were lost in the deep blue of the atmosphere above and to the left was a scene even more beguiling immense aged oaks pines of many years growth all stripped of leaves could be seen moving their snow-laden tops at the weakest breath of the icy breeze Their black trunks stood out in relief against the white background of the snowy plains while their gigantic branches appeared like the unearthly arms of some colossal phantom. In the midst of the sepulchral silence of this night, broken only by the distant noise of the running streams, my ears perceived some unfamiliar sounds which, though weak, and far distant at first, began to swell. Was it an illusion? Perhaps it was. My heated imagination conjured up before me that heroic combat of the armies of Charlemagne against the dwellers of the mountains of Navarre. I heard the clashing of lances, the neighing of horses, the pelting noise of stones as they struck the steel armor of the horsemen, the whizzing of arrows as they flew across the air, the cries of the conquerors, the sighs of the wounded, the groaning of the dying. I was about to close the window and retire to rest when I heard, truly, a clear ringing cry, penetrative, a cry which was echoed by the adjoining rocks and chasms, this cry being repeated and prolonged and echoed over and over again. Francisco, I cried. Tell me, what means this? My cousin awoke, and at that moment, the weird sound was repeated.
1: Oh, I know what it is. It is Roldan, who's blowing his horn, asking for help. And who is this Roldan? Do you not know? Well, he's one of the twelve. Peers of France, who died at the boundary. I could not help
0: but to burst out laughing, but Francisco grew very wrathful at my incredulity, as he was a firm believer in ghosts, phantoms, and apparitions.
1: You unbelieving Jew! Is that all they teach you at the universities? Are there no witches? Do you not believe that the spirits appear of those who have died and were left unburied? Go to Aquilaire on some Saturday night, and on the next morning you will tell me what you have seen. Go now, this very moment, to take a walk in that wood which lies before us. And I promise you that ere you have walked fifty paces, you will meet with Bassa Giovanna.
0: Come, come, cousin, do not take it to heart. I am in total ignorance of all that passes here. I am sorry. Five minutes later, I was in bed, and fast asleep. <laughs> When the first rays of dawn were touching the tops of the mountains which surrounded the monastery, the pack of hounds were gathered in the wide courtyard, their barking awakening the huntsmen. The yelping of those impatient dogs, the blowing of the hunting horns, the voices of those who had risen early produced such a din that I was forced to rise against my will and descend to join them much earlier than I had hoped. My uncle, the cura, with his happy, merry face, breathing health through every pore, was awaiting us, surrounded by huntsmen and followed by the prior, who did not cease to enjoin us to be careful and to take every precaution against being suddenly assailed by the fierce beast we were going to encounter. We joined the group and bade the prior a farewell.
1: Now, boys, keep together, and above all, aim right. May you have a good day's sport. And now I shall go and celebrate mass.
0: Within a quarter of an hour after leaving the monastery we had lost sight of its walls, and had interned ourselves in the forest. We divided the party into couples, the better to scour the forest. We formed a wide semicircle, as in guerrilla warfare, and placed the dogs between the distances. And in this way we proceeded to search high and low, leaving no defile unexplored, nor rock or mountain unscoured, but all in vain. The bear did not show an appearance, nor could we find even the smallest trace which could afford us any clue to its haunts. In this bootless search, we continued until three o'clock in the afternoon, when it was judged prudent to begin our return to the monastery before night could overtake us, as wandering about these solitary places, cold and covered in snow, would be all the more dangerous at night. I was exceedingly tired from ascending and descending the rocks and mountain parts all day as i was little accustomed to this kind of exercise and my hands were raw from the grasping of thorny bushes and briars when scaling the rocks and climbing up the hillsides i threw myself down to rest against a rock and as i did so francisco came and sat down by my side and tigre our good dog lay at our feet licking my hands Come, Francisco, let us have a draft of wine, and then tell me something about Roldan's bugle horn.
1: My cousin smirked at me and said in a grave tone, If you had passed whole weeks as I have, in the forests and woods, with no other companion but a dog and a gun, you would then know a great many things which you know nothing of. Get up and follow me, since you still wish me to tell you something concerning this French knight. and I will tell you what I have heard but it must be related on the very spot where that brave man fell and died. I rose to my feet, and we both proceeded
0: to the eminence pointed out by Francisco. Nothing more grand could be imagined than the view commanded from this spot. The virgin luxuriance of the Basque Mountains, with their trees of immense height, their huge broken chasms and rocks, contemporary with the creation itself, their tops covered with the snow of centuries, and the torrents below of turbid waters which have been flowing on from the beginning of the world. The height upon which we stood was a broken point, and on the opposite side to this division, there was a huge gap. And this opening is the boundary, or gate, which divides it from France. A few moments later, we reached the spot where Roldan had died, and from whence it is said, he still blows his horn. It is related that whenever the blast of his horn is heard, the rocks fall to pieces, the mountains catch fire, and homesteads disappear by fierce storms. I turned to my cousin. Tell me, Francisco, pray tell me about all of this. Well,
1: then listen. There was in France an emperor or king who went on from conquest to conquest, working his way towards the north. In his incursions, he was accompanied by some barons of his realm who were exceedingly brave and daring, among the number being rolled on, and he was distinguished above them all like the tops of a beech tree rising above the other trees of the forests. Wearied of always proceeding towards the north where he only found snow and ice, he returned to his own kingdom and, after making some preparations, he sallied out to conquer the south. Do you see that mountain yonder, so high that its top is nearly lost in the woods? From that mountain up to Elizondo nothing was seen but soldiers. The ground shook beneath the weight of that concourse of men covered with steel, at the head of which went Roldan. No resistance could we offer them, because we were totally unprepared. They went on and reached Pamplona and conquered it. They spread themselves along the shores, and they became the masters. Inebriated with such signal success, they returned to France, leaving their strongholds garrisoned. Nevertheless, in that retreat, there awaited them the punishment to their ambition the whole army passed along that road covered with snow towards where you are looking the multitude of soldiers resembled a long serpent whose head led by the emperor was concealed in oleron and the tail at which stood Roldan, reached to the walls of the holy monastery of roncesvalles all the cliffs and chasms repeated the echoes a thousand times over, the noise of the songs and the clamping of the horses' hooves. Uldan had already reached to the summit of the pine plantation, which from hence looks as small as the lime tree. He was conversing cheerfully with his soldiers when a horrible stampede was heard on the winds. They looked up in terror and saw huge masses bounding down the slopes in fearful leaps and awe-inspiring roar and falling like hail on the troops crushing them to the ground like so many reptiles. And what was that which was flying in space and coming down at them? Pieces of rock the size of these were sitting on. A fearful cry was heard in that defile. The troops mustered together, and with their shields endeavored to offer an opposition to that shower of broken rocks. But the resistance was too weak to be able to repulse projectiles of this description. Their arms were broken, their bodies trampled, and men's guns, vehicles, and horses were crushed down, and before many minutes had elapsed, all that road was covered over with dead bodies, broken corselets, and shields. Roldan was the only one who had been untouched by the missiles. He blew his horn, asking for help, and the fierce, terrible Irinzi, or the war whoop of the Basques, was the response he received.
0: Francisco then pointed his finger and
1: outlined the peaks of the mountains around us. All those mountaintops and heights were crowned with Basques who were hurling down broken rocks, flying arrows, and even throwing huge balls of hard snow. They were commanded by Count Lobo. The count witnessed all this terrible slaughter, seated on the very spot which you are occupying. Roldan made strenuous efforts to reunite his men, and by scaling the mountainsides, "'to cast the enemy from the heights. "'Several times did he reach as far as that break "'which lies two yards from your feet. "'But the trunk of a tree which rolled down the cliff "'and other projectiles arrested his venture. "'At length, wearied by so much wrestling, "'he formed a rampart with the bodies of his soldiers, "'and in this manner, behind this defense, "'he blew his horn and cursed his cousin, the Emperor. "'The sounds from his trumpet grew weaker and weaker,' And as a last effort of his death agony, he took his sword by the blade and cast it far from him. The sword stuck this very spot and was buried up to the hilt. The horn was silenced. Rodan died pierced by arrows and surrounded by the dead bodies of his soldiers. His shadow, nevertheless, wanders about these solitary places, armed to the teeth He is seen on the heights flinging down enormous rocks to obstruct the passage, the silent proof of his route. At times, when some catastrophe threatens the land, the sound of his horn is distinctly heard, announcing by those blasts the misfortune which is threatened. And when the anticipated calamity takes place, there are seen about these localities during the night long lines of armed men dancing to the measure of the strange music which their chieftain executes. Hapless indeed is the Basque muleteer who happens to pass at that moment. What happens then? He will die broken to pieces against the rocks.
0: So then, should these ill-omened fellows appear at this very moment... We should be
1: instantly killed.
0: (laughs) I am not afraid of the dead. I am more impressed by the presence of two living men like you and I than by all the dead bodies of Roldan and his
1: soldiers. Afraid of the living... When I have my gun loaded, I fear none who may stand before me.
0: I was about to reply and perhaps start a discussion, or an argument, when we heard close to us the same strange noise and ringing cry which had reached us on the previous night. That then must be your Roldan, who is no doubt coming to tear us to pieces. But in making my chiding comment, I had thought little about what the actual cause of that cry might be. As I looked towards Francisco for a response, I was astonished to see the terror and ashy pallor of the countenance of my cousin, who, with finger on his lips, was indicating for me to keep silent. Tigre also had pricked up his ears and was uttering sinister howls. What is the matter? Why, look to the right! Did you not hear? As I shifted my focus to listen, I could easily hear the crackling sound of dry branches as they broke under the heavy, muffled tread of someone slowly advancing, but I did not apprehend what it was. Perhaps it is your Roldan who is approaching? And I asked this truly in that moment, half convinced that the supposition may be a true one.
1: Who knows? Silence! Quiet, tiger!
0: The night was fast closing in, and the mists were descending from the mountains over the valleys. All at once throughout space resounded a ringing cry far more piercing than any we had yet to hear, and on turning round in the direction from whence it proceeded, we beheld, in astonishment, a formidable black bear only thirty paces from us, and which stood still and stared at us. <laughs> When I saw him, I felt the blood freezing in my veins, and almost mechanically, I raised my gun to aim, but Francisco cried out as he grasped my gun to lower it.
1: Do not fire, else we are lost.
0: The animal was slowly advancing, growling with pleasure on seeing his coveted prey so near to him, and which he felt sure of obtaining. The prior had been correct, the beast was a huge one, and his paws, with their sharp, curved claws, were truly monstrous. Francisco perceived that the animal was beginning to agitate himself.
1: Let us prepare for a hand-to-hand fight.
0: He began drawing out his long woodsman's knife. Were I alone... What would you do?
1: I would lodge a shot in his body, and then pierce him through with a knife. Shoot him, then, and if you do not succeed in killing him, I will fire also. It is impossible, because should I not kill him, he would attack us, and although were I alone, I could easily defend myself. Yet... I could not do so with you. Let us run for it, then. Run from him? You are tired out. And before we should have departed twenty paces, you would feel his claws clutching at your neck.
0: No. Let us do something else. As if understanding our words, the bear uttered a deep growl and suddenly dashed at us. But quick as thought, my cousin leaped to the front and placed his body between me and the beast. The eyes of Francisco were gleaming with a strange light. His right hand grasped the long knife, and a feverish tremor betrayed his extraordinary resolve. That wrestling would have proved an unequal one had not another combatant appeared on the field when the bear was at a short distance from us. The dog, Tigre, which had been hitherto only yelping and watching, now leaped onto the beast with the strength and agility of dogs of his breed and, catching him by the neck, turned him over, and both rolled to the ground. The rage of the bear now was something terrible. He growled savagely and set at the dog. The latter, being agile and trained, parried the attacks of the beast with surprising skill.
1: We are saved!
0: I hastily began preparing my gun. Let us fire at him, Francisco.
1: Keep quiet, for heaven's sake! Don't you see that, should we not kill him, he would turn his attacks from the dog and direct his fury towards us? Let us reserve our shot for the end. In the meantime,
0: the bear was vainly trying to catch the dog, but every time that he renewed the attack, the dog would fly at him and dig its teeth into the bear, forcing him to roar out furiously. My cousin began to call at the top of his voice to summon the other huntsmen in hopes that he could make himself heard by them, and they, in their turn, were already very anxious because we had not rejoined them. At last, after what seemed like hours, but was likely only a few moments, We heard the blasting of the hunting horns, the yelping of dogs, and the answering cries of our companions announcing their arrival. And when the bear heard all that noise, he began to retire very slowly. So we took the opportunity and fired two shots, but he disappeared into the wood. All the huntsmen hastened up to us, nearly exhausted with fatigue from their rushing to meet us and fearful that some misfortune had happened to us. Pepe, Pepe, where is Pepe? Uncle, I'm here. Are you unhurt? Yes, thank God. But had it not been for Francisco, the bear would have torn me to pieces. Mercy upon us. At that moment, we heard the noise of a gun in the wood. We all ran towards the spot whence came the noise, and we found Francisco, raising his gun to fire with the greatest coolness. I've wounded the beast. If we follow the track, the bear will be ours. But one of the other huntsmen nervously pointed out to Francisco that night was nearly upon them.
1: What does it matter?
0: My cousin shouldered his gun and started in pursuit. We all followed him, and on the snow we could plainly see the spots of blood from the wounded animal. The pack of dogs were leashed together, setting Tigray foremost, and we joined ourselves together in a closed column, and, preparing our weapons, we followed for a considerable distance the track of the animal. By this time the night had well closed in, but we were able to continue our search, thanks to the reflected light cast up from the whiteness of the untrodden snow. The footprints and occasional spots of blood from the wounded animals served as our guide, but on reaching a plain, encircled by high rocks like gradients in an amphitheater, the trace of footprints and the drops of blood ceased. From this we inferred that the bear's den must be in some opening of the rock standing before us. So we decided to encamp on the snow taking all necessary precautions to spend the night in security and all possible comfort with a quantity of dry branches we kindled the fire fastened the dogs into couples refreshed ourselves with food and wine and settled to sleep some of the keepers took their turn to watch and formed a sort of mounted night guard in spite of the piercing cold which was somewhat modified by the heat of the fire We soon managed to fall fast asleep. By dawn we were awake and had commenced our search anew. We found deeply impressed footprints in the snow and followed that track which led us to the further end of this natural amphitheater of rocks. At the base of a high cliff we discovered an opening, curtained by overhanging branches and much tangled growth and none doubted that this opening led to the den of our enemy. We carefully examined the surroundings of this mountain in order to discover whether there existed any other openings to this cave, but to our great satisfaction, we found none. We then held a sort of council of war to discuss the best means possible of dislodging this animal from his lair, and after some animated discussion, the proposal suggested by Francisco, was unanimously adopted. The strategy was a simple one, to place the huntsmen on the heights which surrounded the plain for safety, and the keepers with the dogs leashed together to stand at the entrance of the plain. Then, to collect some branches, pile them up at the mouth of the cave and set fire to them, and by this means, smoke the beast out from its lair. We accordingly perched ourselves along the heights of the rocks, and my cousin, Armed with his long hunting knife, and followed by some of the men carrying wood, gently approached the cavern, covered up the entrance with the branches, and set fire to them. My curiosity was now at its highest point, and the eyes of all were fixed on the bonfire, which was beginning to cast vivid flames and dense columns of smoke. Francisco stood to my immediate right, and the dog Tigre to my left. Nearly 10 minutes elapsed without anything taking place and we were beginning to think we had after all missed our mark. When suddenly we perceived the ignited branches flying into the air, scattered about on all sides under the vigorous kicks of the bear. He appeared on the scene uttering fearful growls and casting fiery glances around at all of us. When the animal found himself enclosed within that narrow circle, his fury knew no bounds he made towards the dogs, which were all let loose together and at once, and a terrible fight ensued. The bloodhounds covered the bear with their tawny bodies, the beast lacerating all those he could bite with his long teeth, and in a short time out of that rolling heap of bodies came forth indescribable cries of pain and flowing blood. Thirteen of the dogs fell victim, either killed or wounded, and the rest withdrew at the call of their keepers. The bear was now fairly exhausted and sat on its haunches, unable to move, with its jaws hanging wide open and its tongue hanging out like a sheet of red-hot iron. Suddenly my uncle cried out,
1: Fire together!
0: and five balls of iron entered the animal's body. The bear gave a tremendous leap on finding himself wounded in this way and reared up onto his hind legs, gazing upon the scene around him. And with desperate bounds horrible growls and grinding his teeth in a fearful manner covered in blood and froth he dashed in the direction of francisco and myself planning to attack us in order to reach where we stood it was necessary for the animal to clamber a cliff of about 16 feet high upon one of the crevices of which we had taken our position the other huntsmen did not dare fire for fear of wounding us nor were they able to render us any assistance as it was too late to prevent the attack or to divert the beast. To our horror, we found the bear with surprising agility clambering up towards us and we could feel the hot breath coming from his nostrils. The onlooking huntsmen were terror-stricken and my poor uncle endeavored to encourage us with cheering words while a cold perspiration overspread my face. I trembled from head to foot and I knew not what to do. I was scared and I turned towards my cousin, who gave me a grasp of the hand. The bear advanced, and had already raised his huge paws to pounce upon us. Francisco leapt forward, made the sign of the Holy Cross, raised his gun, and as I closed my eyes in terror, took aim and fired. Suddenly a cry of joy resounded in that enclosed plain, and I opened my eyes to see the beast rolling over down the broken cliff, and Tigre with him. Francisco uttered an orinze of triumph, and, swiftly following the animal, he leapt down and stuck his long knife into the breast of the beast. Three hours later, we entered the walls of the monastery with the dead body of the Black Bear, the terror of the adjacent mountains. From his body was extracted about twenty pounds of fat, and his handsome skin covered for some years the prioral couch of Roncesvale. For a number of years after this event, I used to dream very frequently about Roldan's buglehorn, and whenever I was troubled by these dreams, I would awaken in a cold sweat, starting up nervously, believing myself to be caught in the clutches of that great black bear. Okay, so in truth, I am biting my nails in anticipation that you enjoyed it as much as I hope you did. If you want to see more of these, know that I want to produce more of them, and that I will put in the work, and that if I can hold your interest and earn your support, I will produce more of them. I'd like to produce two per month. I hope that this story can serve as a good example, my first attempt at immersive storytelling, and I hope that it is enough to convince you, today, to take action to support the next one. Right now, go visit www. Dot mffpodcast.com forward slash more and find out how to support this project and be part of choosing the next story I bring to life in this way. A big thank you to Owen McEwen, who played the roles of The Prior, The Uncle, and Francisco. To learn more about Owen, you can visit com. Thanks to Nico Vertese, who produced the primary theme music of the story. You can learn more about Nico on his website, wetalkofdreams.com. A special thanks to Mark Kuchu and Jessica Rainville for their help in pulling some of the production elements together and for providing their feedback at various stages of the creative process. To learn more about Mark, you can visit his website at theyellowva.com, and Jessica can be found at jessicarainville.com. Owen, Mark, and Jessica are each talented voice actors, and I greatly appreciate both their mastery of their craft and their patience with this inexperienced director as he learns how to direct scenes. I look forward to working with each of you in the near future. Special thanks to Fred Greenhalge of Dagaz Media and writer and co-producer of The Dark Tome for his input on the post-production process and for his advice on future improvements and considerations. Fred, if you're listening, you are a mentor and the degree to which I appreciate your respect cannot be overstated. Thank you. Deep appreciation to the texting community, which if you would like to, you can join by texting hello to 207-501-3119 for their ongoing support and feedback during the creation process, especially to Matt, Alicia, Lindsay, and Katie. Finally, thanks to Soundsnap.com, Artlist.io, SoundDogs.com, BoomLibrary.com, and the BBC Sound Effects Library at bbcsfx.acropolis.org.uk for curating such incredible sound effects and for making such wonderful libraries available to creatives like me by including podcasting use language in your licensing terms. These last five are resources and are not in any way sponsors of this content, but they do make my content possible by existing as licensable premium libraries. And thank you, of course, dear listener, for being here, for appreciating what I create, and for giving me some of your time and attention. I know that there are many podcasts out there which you could be listening to. That you chose mine is an honor, and I will always do my best to be deserving of that honor. One last time, please visit mffpodcast.com forward slash more to discover ways to support this project and to ensure its continued production. Thanks again for listening today, and until next time, take care.